For the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live with in a sensible, righteous and godly way in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession eager to do good works. Say these things, and encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting and to be kind, always showing um, gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. But when the kindness of God, our Saviour, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness um, but that, that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured, out, uh, he poured his Spirit out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Saviour, so that we have been justified by his grace. We may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. You might be thinking to yourself, you might be thinking to yourself, that Titus chapters 2 and 3 is an unusual place to go to examine this topic because the focus of this part of Titus is on the fact that Christians must do good works and we must be good people. That's almost the main point of Titus chapters 2 and 3. We must be kind people, loving people, gentle people. You there with the dirty mouth, how dare you call yourself a Christian? You there, God knows what you get up to late at night on your computer when you think no one's watching. How dare you call yourself a saint? Christians must be spotless. This is the point of Titus 2 and 3. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. These are not my words, of course. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. In the book of Titus, if you just cast your eye back to chapter 2, verse 2, you'll see Paul tells Titus exactly what is required of those who claim to be Christians. Uh, Older men, he speaks to in chapter 2, verse 2, are to be level-headed, worthy of respect, sensible, etc., etc. Verse 3, older women. Verse 4, he talks about young women. Uh, So young women, pay attention. Verse 6, he talks about young men. Young men, pay attention. Verse 9, slaves. Then skip down to verse 15, where again, Paul tells Titus to say these things. Verse 15, encourage people when they're doing good. Rebuke people when they're continuing in sin. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living malice and in envy, hateful, detesting one another. But of course the implication is, but we we shouldn't be like that anymore. So you may be asking at first glance when you look at Titus 2 and 3, you may be asking, what on earth does this have to do with grace alone? Grace doesn't sound very alone in this passage. This sounds like a passage on the importance of being good. In fact, even more strongly on the necessity of being good and doing good. 
But of course, that's exactly why I want us to look at Titus this evening. Because often, when people object to this key Protestant doctrine, this doctrine, this teaching that we've held on to for 500 years so strongly, and we'd argue goes all the way back to the Bible, often when they object, their concern is that it will produce lazy Christians, Christians who are unconcerned with righteousness. If you say salvation has nothing to do with good works, then people won't bother to reform their behavior. And you can sort of see where they're coming from, right? Doesn't that argument sound sort of intuitive to you? It certainly makes sense to me. And in addition, the way some so-called Christians behave in the workplace, in the classroom, on the sporting field, on the internet, reinforces that idea, doesn't it? So I don't want anyone here to get the impression that salvation by grace alone means Christians can be relaxed about putting to death sin in our lives and pursuing righteousness. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And he's not kidding around. Unless your righteousness surpasses that. The Pharisees, of course, were extremely righteous people. They studied the scriptures diligently. They prayed regularly. They gave generously. They disciplined themselves to keep the law. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. I don't know how many times I need to reinforce this. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, you might be thinking, so much for grace alone. I thought we were going to hear a talk on grace alone. But if that is your question, then that's, that's exactly why I want us to go to Titus. Because did you notice the little word for at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 11? The beginning of our Bible reading, verse 11 begins, For the grace of God has appeared. In other words, why should older men be level-headed? Older women not be slanderers. Why should younger women be self-controlled, be pure, be homemakers? Why should younger men be self-controlled? Why should slaves be submissive to their masters? Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared. Because the grace of God has appeared with salvation for all people. Instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts. And to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in the present age. Do you see that? In other words, grace doesn't drive us to laziness as Christians, laxity in morality, quite the opposite. Grace is our instructor in godliness. Uh, Commenting on this verse, John Calvin says, What is proclaimed concerning the mercy of God is seized by some as all occasion of licentiousness. They take that to to mean an opportunity. Well, if, if it's grace alone, I can sin. But, he says, the manifestation of the grace of God unavoidably carries along with it exhortations to a holy life. Now, we would usually think of laws as instructing us, wouldn't we? It's kind of obvious how laws instruct us. But no, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, grace instructs us. Grace has appeared with salvation for all people, and grace instructs us. It educates us. The word is kind of 
the word is related to training or disciplining a child. So like a father disciplines or trains a child, uh, not just when he's done the wrong thing, but a father kind of shapes and molds his children in every area of life, encouraging on the one hand, rebuking on the other hand, exactly what Titus is told to do. Grace trains us to deny godlessness and live in a godly way. And of course, the occasion Paul is talking about when grace appeared is when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared. When he appeared, he came to earth in his life, his death, and his resurrection. He displayed God's grace more clearly and completely than had ever been seen before. And so it is through the display of God's grace in the salvation offered to all people in the Lord Jesus Christ that we receive instruction to deny godlessness and live godly lives. Now, in a minute, I want to have a think about how exactly grace instructs us to live godly lives. But before we go any further, I I think we need to get some definitions right first. Okay, so I want to define two things. First of all, let's talk about what grace actually is. This is one of the key differences between the Roman Catholics and Protestants. It's what we understand by the word grace, because we both talk about grace. Sometimes it sounds very similar, but it's quite different. When Roman Catholics talk about grace, they mean something like, grace is power that God infuses to us so that we can do good works. Okay, do you hear that? Grace is power that God infuses or imparts to us through the church, I might add, uh, through the sacraments of the church. God imparts this power to us so that we can, can do good works. And in fact, just to explain that a little bit more, it is actually through our cooperation with grace, this power that we receive, And as we do these good works, that we earn God's favor. That's how Roman Catholics earn God's favor, through cooperating with the grace they receive from God, this power they receive from God, through the sacraments, through the church. And that's ultimately how they enjoy God's favor and how they enjoy eternal life. Now, Protestants define grace very differently. Grace is God's undeserved favor towards us. In other words, grace is not a power that is infused to us. It is an attitude that God has towards us. It's not something we need to cooperate with in order to earn God's favor. No, it's the fact that God favors us, even though we don't deserve his favor. Do you see how these are vastly different definitions? We're talking about completely different things. As Protestants, by the way, of course, we believe God works within us by his spirit, empowers us to do good works, and so on. It's not that Protestants believe God doesn't empower us or something like that, but that's not what we think grace is. And we certainly don't think this power is dispensed somehow through the sacraments of the church. But first of all, we need to get that definition of grace clear. Okay, Grace is God loves us, God favors us, God is for us, God wants the best for us, just because he's loving and kind, and we don't deserve it at all, but That's grace. Now, secondly, I want to define godliness very quickly because it's commonly misunderstood. The thing I need to clarify is that godliness does not, in the first place, mean doing the right thing. It's not goodliness. It's godliness. Godliness is about living the whole of your life with reference to God. Okay, Every aspect of your life 
You're trying to live every aspect of your life in alignment with God's character, God's plans, God's purposes, with God's will and with God's word. Which, of course, will involve being good, but it's much more than that. Godly people put God first. That's the nub of it. Now, godless people, in contrast, may be, in some ways, moral, upstanding citizens. Right? On the surface, you know, it's, it's not as if all godless people are thieves and murderers and kind of going around just trying to kill as many people as they possibly can. Many of them would never dream of doing such a thing because they are moral, upstanding citizens. Nonetheless, they are godless. A godless person is defined by someone who ignores God. Godless people disregard God. They don't take him into account in their lives. Now, of course, godlessness will lead to immorality in all sorts of ways. Uh, Godly people will be good. Godless people will be evil. As soon as you lift the lid on these moral upstanding citizens, you find they are whitewashed tombs, squeaky clean on the outside, rotting and corrupt on the inside, filled with bitterness, pride, gossips, slanderers, hateful, malicious. If they had more opportunities, they would sin more. If they knew they weren't going to get caught, they would sin even more. If they were under more pressure to sin, they would sin more. You know, if they were in a sticky situation and they thought they could get out of it by lying, they would. If they were in a stressful situation, they would lose their temper. If they were starving, they would steal. You see, if they had more opportunity, if they knew they weren't going to get caught, if they were under more pressure, they would sin more. But it's important to understand that the heart of the problem is not their long list of sins or their kind of disgruntled attitude or something. It's their essential attitude towards God. That's the heart of the problem. That's what defines someone as godless and defines someone as godly. All right, well, uh, I want to get those definitions out of the way so that as we move through the passage, uh, we're on board with what's happening. So let's get back to Titus chapter 2. And my question for you is, Paul says grace instructs us to live godly lives not godless lives. My question is, how does it do that? We've defined grace, we've defined godliness, but how does grace instruct us to live godly lives? I can see how law instructs us to live godly lives, right? That's obvious. But how does grace do that? I want you to chat with the person next to you for 30 seconds about that question. And then we'll get back together. So... What did you think? How does grace instruct us? How does grace instruct us? I personally, it comes to my mind when Jesus with the, uh, the prostitute who's, who's you know, clean, clean stuff and then yep. the Pharisees have a go at him and he makes, I'm pretty sure it's at that time, when he makes a comment to those who have been forgiven much. Yes, much. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Great. Did everyone hear that? Everyone heard that? Remember the prostitute, Jesus? Yeah. Um, those who have been forgiven little, love little. Those who have been given, forgiven much, love much. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, verse 14 says he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse himself as special people, eager to do good works. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Look, we'll, um, we'll dig into it together. You'll see from your outline, um, I actually do think there are sort of several facets to this and aspects to it, but I've tried to summarize it um, for you with kind of two points. I think God's grace turns us towards him and God's grace turns us towards each other. Um, so first of all, God's grace turns us towards him, i.e. knowing that God loves us and is for us, we are eager to orient our lives towards him, looking uh, to him to see how he is going to continue to love us and provide for us and lavish on us his goodness. And remember, that's first of all what godliness is, you see. Godliness is first of all orienting your life around God, always considering him. So, of course, God's wonderful grace motivates us to think about him. Just the same way that any beautiful thing or exciting thing draws our attention. God's grace draws our attention and orients our life around him. But secondly, God's grace turns us towards each other. It's an example for us of how to treat others. Uh, I was thinking of the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, or the ungrateful servant. He talks, uh, Jesus talks about a servant who was forgiven a great debt by his master. But then having been forgiven, this servant refuses to forgive a small debt owed to him by one of his fellow slaves. He grabs him, starts choking him and says, pay what you owe. In the end, Jesus says, such a man will be condemned. Why? Because God's grace to us is meant to be our example for how to live graciously to uh, ourselves, towards others. Those who don't live grace-filled lives clearly have no appreciation of the grace of God, which appeared in the Lord Jesus Christ, bringing salvation for all men. Okay, so I think, I think, That is a quick summary of how God's grace instructs us, trains us, educates us. It turns us to God and it turns us to each other. But there's something inadequate about that answer. What is it? And I think this is where Paul goes in chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. Actually, I think it picks up on Alex's comment as well. But because, you see, our problem is not merely education or lack of instruction. Our problem is much deeper. The beauty of God's grace displayed in Jesus Christ ought to draw our attention. But for some reason, it doesn't draw the attention of everyone, does it? Why? Because even something beautiful is ignored by the blind. Uh, Likewise, we have the case of the ungrateful servant. I mean, what happened to him? What keeps us all from becoming like him? He received instruction, as it were, from outside about what it means to be gracious, but it didn't benefit him. Well, here's where I think we come to the crux of the issue. Because, you see, before God can nurture us and instruct us and discipline us as his children, of course, we must be his children. We must be born into his family. We must be born again to new life. And this too is all of grace, all down to his sheer goodness and love for mankind. So check out verses 4 to 7. When the goodness of God and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out this spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that Having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. In other words, why should we be ready for every good work? Why should we treat all people with kindness and gentleness? Because by God's grace, we've been born again. And notice, 
Our definition of grace is really clearly spelled out in these verses. In verse 3, we were described as foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Not very lovable, in other words. But in spite of that, verse 4 tells us God loves mankind. I mean, if we weren't so used to it, verse 4 would be shocking, wouldn't it? Who could love uh, such a pitiful mass of corruption? God loves us. And in the Lord Jesus, his love for mankind appeared. It was made manifest. Verse 5, he saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. You see, grace is not power that God infuses to us so that we can do good works to earn God's favor. No, that completely undermines the whole point here. We do not earn God's favor. We do not earn God's favor even with God's help. God freely bestows his favor upon us in spite of our incessant depravity. Grace is God's attitude towards us of sheer kindness and love. Even though by nature we are totally depraved without any good in us and we deserve no such affection. And this is where we need to stand up and say we are saved by grace alone, not by works. Grace isn't grace if it's not alone. If it's conditioned on works, then it's not grace. If it's conditioned on anything, it's not grace. If we're saved by grace plus anything, it's not grace. Commenting on this verse, John Calvin writes, We therefore conclude from his words, Paul's words, that we bring nothing to God, but that he goes before us by his pure grace without any regard to works. For when he says, not by works, which we have done, he means that we can do nothing but sin till we have been renewed by God. He said that they were foolish and disobedient and led away by various desires till they were created anew in Christ. And indeed, what good work could proceed from so corrupt a mass? In short, that we, rather than others, have been admitted to enjoy the salvation of Christ is altogether ascribed by Paul to the mercy of God because there were no works of righteousness in us. So what does Titus teach us? We are not saved by works. Of course not. But more than that, in God's grace... He has saved us for good works. In God's kindness, he has saved us out of hell. But more than that, he has saved us out of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. In God's kindness, he washed us and regenerated us and renewed us by the Holy Spirit. We were dead in our sins, but just because he wanted to, he made us alive. And he poured out his spirit on us abundantly, verse 6 says, through Jesus Christ our Savior. We have been doused in the breath of life, immersed in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, the spirit of goodness. And notice verse 7 says, This is all so that, having been justified by his grace in the past, we may become heirs of eternal life. That is the connection between justification now 
and actually receiving our inheritance on the last day, the connection is not our own efforts, not our own perseverance, not our own anything. But again, it's God's grace in pouring out his spirit on us. That's how we're we're heirs. That's how we will inherit. In other words, from first to last, salvation is all of God, all by his grace. And that's why we must stand up and proclaim salvation by grace alone. Grace alone, from first to last, not by works that we have done, neither when we were non-Christians or when we're Christians. Let me say it again. The Bible offers no assurance of salvation to so-called believers whose lives are still filthy and rotting in sin. If your life is still rotting, it's probably because you're dead. Dead people always rot. But to those who have been brought to life, we can be encouraged that just as God in his mercy has justified us, so also he has filled us with his spirit and he will take us to the very end to be with him, to inherit eternal life. Let me close in prayer. I thought since we're doing a um, series on the Reformation, I'd close with a prayer from the prayer book. So let's pray. Grant, we beseech thee, almighty God, that we, who for our evil deeds do worthily deserve to be punished, by the comfort of thy grace, may mercifully be relieved through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.